0: Welcome to episode 107 with my guest, Sarah Benincasa. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. I might even say kind of a fun waiting room, sometimes a little dark. But uh, ultimately, oh, God, shut up. <laughs> what was that a record? I went 30 seconds without disgusting myself. Woo. Um, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff there you can do to, uh, to get involved in this community where we're trying to build. Uh, there's a forum there with tons of different threads on all every kind of subject you can imagine. If there's a, a thread you'd like uh, me to start, uh, email me and and let me know. But go join the forum first and, and check it out. And there are about a, a about ten different surveys that you can take um, on the website as well. And you can also see how other people responded in taking those surveys. And that's a that's a good way to kill a couple hours at night as uh, just going through those surveys and. Seeing what other people what other what other people think and feel and uh don't share because when when people um take the, the surveys anonymously they they really open up and um it's been really illuminating for me doing this show and getting to getting to know what's inside you guys and um like, was there something oh I want there's two things I wanted to mention uh two episodes ago uh the episode with Ali uh, uh, handler was uh very polarizing some people uh really liked it and some people really really disliked it and um, I just want to say that the the I would ask you to keep an open mind um, when I put episodes up that aren't what you think a mental illness happy hour episode or guest should be. Um, I found, in in a nutshell, the 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 episode with Allie was she found. Um, a a guy that she had been living with or not living with been going out with. She found some pornography that was kind of sketchy that, that he, he had and uh, and, and some other stuff that really kind of where she felt betrayed, but the way she handled it wasn't, wasn't very good. But I, I thought the way that she reacted was how most 19 year old girls would have reacted. And so I thought intellectually, it was a really interesting episode because there was so much gray area. There were so many things where people could easily weigh in on one side or the other. And I think people expect an episode of this show to be something where there's this kind of maybe catharsis or this this kind of, um, I don't know, kind of emotional payoff. And I think it's nice to mix it up and and have something in there that's kind of more intellectually um stimulating and not maybe necessarily as emotionally um stimulating. So that was kind of my thought in putting that together, but uh, the people that didn't like that episode really didn't uh, really didn't like it and um so that's where I'm coming from, but I totally stand by it. I totally stand by it and um I appreciate Allie coming on the the show and and saying what she she had to uh, to say. The other thing I wanted to mention: uh, there are no uh, ad spots in this week's episode. Um, and I've been getting some emails from people that are like, "What the fuck's with the ad spot in the middle of the in the middle of the episode?" Well, that is um, that brings in more revenue than an ad spot um, in the beginning of this show. And the advertisers have their choice of putting it in the beginning of the show or in the middle of the show. And they pay more for it to be in the middle of the show. So um, that's why it, it went it's been going in the middle of the uh in the middle of the show. I don't do that because I want to piss you guys off. I do that because I want to uh pay my mortgage. Hmm. What do you think of that? Speaking of Allie, this is uh we're gonna kick it off with some surveys. This is uh from a woman who calls herself Allie G. Um and this is from the struggle in a sentence survey. She's female. She's between 16 and 19. About her depression, she says, if I don't get out of bed, I won't ruin anything today. Oh, my God. That is so succinct. I so relate to that. About her anxiety, she says, something terrible is happening, but I'm the only one who recognizes the danger. And uh, about her constant hand washing, uh, uh, she says, it's an alternating freezing and scalding water. Thank you for that. Allie, this is uh, also from the uh, Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Yoga's Me. She is in her 20s. About her depression, she says, like I'm viewing the world through dried contact lenses, unable to react quickly or make sound judgments. About her alcoholism and drug addiction, she writes, a desperate need to escape the monotony and dullness of depression. Wow, do I relate to that. About her PTSD, she writes, it's like being caught in a real-world game of Minesweeper provoked by random moments and experiences. And about her sexual experience, a sexual bias, she says it's like wearing a string bikini to a formal orchestra. I just love when people fill out the survey and they, in a sentence, can convey what it feels like to deal with the struggle that they they deal with. So thank you for that. This was uh, from the Shame and Secret survey, also filled out by uh, Yoga's Me. And uh, she... As I said, she's 20. She was raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse, but never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Every time I feel on the brink of happiness, I get the impulse to self-destruct. I think about dying and fantasize about watching my funeral. Deepest, darkest secrets. I've had over 10 threesomes. I seek them out to recreate power over a sexual assault experience when I was manipulated into having a threesome with the same man who raped me and took my virginity. I have sought out submissive male sex partners in the BEAM scene. I BEAM, uh, I assume, means bondage and uh, masochism. Um, yeah? Is that what that means? Uh, B-E-A-M scene, she writes. I assume that's what it is. Um, specifically so I could consensually have really rough sex with them and act out that hatred. Um what are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you she writes I've acted on most of my powerful fantasies including strap on sex with a male making two men worship and serve my body at once and perform with each other for my entertainment I fantasize about everyone I know male and female to want me sexually and have the power and choice to sleep with whoever I want would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend she writes yes a friend or sex partner but not somebody I would want to be romantically intimate with Um, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, yes, pure and utter confusion. It would be delusional to think that playing dominatrix helps me process my past, but I get such a rush that it's hard to walk away. Overall, my lifestyle and fantasies seem a sham as I pretend to be powerful and confident to mask my fear of vulnerability. That is so so profound and moving that she can she can see what what it is that she's doing and experiencing and yet it's almost like watching something that you you can't control or you can't you can't resist and thank you for 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 filling that out and i really encourage you to check out a support group for um sexual assault uh survivors because um that vulnerability you're looking for uh is there in in support groups um, you know there's a saying in a lot of support groups that let us love you until until you can love yourself and um that's been the case for for me and some of my support groups and there's something really powerful about loving other people that uh, that I find to be really healing it's It's like you love enough enough strangers and hear their stories, eventually you're going to go, why the fuck can't I love myself a little bit more? Easier said than done. Um, This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Sheep Dip. And we got a couple surveys from him uh, today. And about his body, he writes, my dick is too fucking small. I lost my right nut to cancer. My uvula, uvula was removed to try and cure my sleep apnea. It didn't help, and now I just choke on shit all the time. I have scars from cancer and cysts. I'm going bald on my head, but I have bushels of hair growing everywhere else, including my ass, back, nose, and ears. If I were unable to shave, I'd look like a fucking wookie. I love this guy. I love this guy. Um, and his shame and secret survey, he uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Um, he's in his forties. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, his sexual fantasy is most powerful to him. Uh, having two women suck my dick at the same time. Having one woman play with my nipples while another sucks my dick. Sucking another guy's dick with the help of a woman. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? He writes, no fucking way. I might hit the bunny ranch, though. Uh, Did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, self-hate, frustration, embarrassment, restriction, unfulfilled. And then, um, deepest, darkest secrets, Uh, when I was 19, I went to third base with a 12-year-old girl. She initiated, but I should have stopped her. Um, And deepest, darkest thoughts, Uh, when I was married to my ex-wife, I wished she would die so I wouldn't have to deal with divorcing her. If I could could have sex with an underage hot girl and not get in trouble for it or hurt her, I'd do it. I sometimes think that under the right circumstances, I could kill someone. Uh, I'm starting to have gay thoughts. And my favorite, I kind of like Nickelback.
1: Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head.
0: Oh God, it's so embarrassing.
1: I'm afraid I'll never get another job again.
0: That I will die and will have not been special.
1: My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible.
0: A million pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I
1: ended up becoming a
0: male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos.
1: Like, it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is.
0: you go to a spark group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have.
1: 1% event.
0: My body was abused.
1: 99% judgment about that event.
0: But they couldn't touch the best parts of me.
1: But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does.
0: I'm, uh, I'm here with uh, with Sarah Benincasa, and we're at, at her place in, uh, in Los Angeles. And I'm so glad that we finally made this happen. We've been emailing back and forth. I believe that you were suggested... To me, as a guest, by a listener, and they said she 's a a blogger and an author and a and a comedian, and she 's really funny and she um, she 's a great writer, and so I read one of your blogs, and it was about apologizing
1: yes, it was um for jezebel, and it was called i 'm not sorry." Uh, i 'm so not sorry about my vagina and other po- apologies we should retract
0: yes classy
1: title from a classy lady
0: and and it it was about the addiction to apologizing and living from this place of um, you know, i don 't have needs
1: right i 'm sorry i 'm sorry and and mine was specifically about women. I think there are men who who do it too absolutely mine was about women being you know, apologizing for being too big, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, personality wise. Um I you know, I'm sorry for for there being too much of me in the world. And apologizing for bumping into a table, apologizing to the table, or um if somebody bumps into you, apologizing to them, or if somebody else cuts you off in traffic, being like, Oh, I'm sorry. Um that kind of thing that, that we do often and, and my specific example was um one time I was having sex with someone and it was really uncomfortable. And instead of saying, Hey, let's stop doing this or, Hey, let's, you know, change positions or, Hey, could you go easier? I said, I'm sorry. Or was it, was it during sex or was it to the gynecologist? I'm trying to remember because there are actually two times in which I've said the following phrase. I'm sorry. My vagina is so sensitive. (laughs) Once to a guy, once to a gynecologist. And I can't remember which one I cited in the article, but, um, yeah so that that just to me that is the most ridiculous thing of all apologizing for the most sensitive organ in your body being sensitive <laughs> is just that 's when apologizing has gone wild and gone crazy and needs to stop <laughs>
0: um, where would be where would be a good place uh, to start for well first of all, people um might know you as a correspondent for comedy central 's uh, indecision. 2012 you
1: were also course- oh, it was actually was i in decision 20 20- wait i was with i was comedy central in decision forever not for oh. 2012 Oh, okay um so i was with them for a couple of years um like i guess i was with them through 2010 2010 2009 2010 2011 i think is when i was with them and in 2008 i was a correspondent for um mtv news in their choose or lose street team i was their new york rep Um, I blog for Jezebel and Exo Jane. I wrote a book called Agora Fabulous, Dispatches from My Bedroom. And um, I do, you know, occasional TV appearances on things like um, the History Channel has a show called I Love the 1880s. Um, I'll be on Fuse sometimes or on VH1 saying sassy things about Mm. people who are far more successful and rich than I am. (laughs) Um, Are
0: you a history buff?
1: I am not a history buff but I have to say that working on this project made me learn more about history like did you know for example that the world's first bulletproof vest was invented by a priest in Chicago and it consisted of a layer of metal that was sandwiched between pieces of silk and really? it was yeah and it was um it was Designed for, he promoted it all over the world. And actually, I believe that um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Serbia, I think, was wearing it when he was murdered which set off the
0: world war one
1: right but he was wearing it on his person on his body and not on his face and i think he was shot in the head (laughs) (laughs) so that didn't really work out that's at least that's my understanding from the history channel i may have mangled it but i think that's what happened so um so yeah i got to learn weird stuff like that yeah I learned that the Pony Express was a crazy failure. It only lasted about a year and a half, and it was a terrible failure. It was overpriced and and wasn't reliable. Um, They
0: forgot to book ponies.
1: Yeah, they forgot to book ponies, which is a problem. They just had oxen. It was was awkward. Huge Huge, oversight. Awkward oversight. I would like to say also that right now I am dealing with something that is um, I took my Prozac without... Enough water. So I have that sort of. Um, do you take medication? I do. So, you know, when you get that, you just get it stuck in the throat.
0: Do you want to go get some water?
1: Oh, no. I'm actually enjoying it. It's kind of entertaining me. I'm like, <laughs> where's this going to go? I don't know. You know, I, I don't It's going to stay there. Does I don't know Paul what's know the
0: Heimlich maneuver?
1: Yeah, like maybe I'll die of happiness yeah. from this Prozac. That
0: would be, if you had to give somebody a Heimlich maneuver for a Prozac pill, that might be the tiniest projectile ever forced out of somebody.
1: Yes, absolutely. It'd be I, almost kind of cute. It would be sort of adorable. Like, there's my selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor <laughs> just flying across the room. I take Prozac and Abilify, and um, so the Abilify I took earlier, and then I, I just like f- conveniently forgot about the Prozac, which is ridiculous. I take it every single day of my life. Abilify
0: sounds like something that somebody would do in a court proceeding, doesn't yes. it?
1: Yeah. Uh, Your honor, I forgot honor, to <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to Abilify. <laughs> this note uh yeah it but instead it is an atypical antipsychotic fun um which uh i take if as a i think of it as like a a wheatgrass shot to my smoothie it's like a little booster to it's prescribed at higher doses for um bipolar and for schizophrenia but at lower doses it is used to be a, a fun piano accompaniment to <laughs> Prozac or not Prozac so the, uh, I think to SSRIs I'm not sure about other antidepressants but um, it, it's used sometimes in combination so what
0: have you have you ever been diagnosed with uh, a thing
1: sure yeah um depression agoraphobia and uh panic attacks
0: do does agoraphobia fall underneath the umbrella of panic attacks, or is it a separate thing? It
1: falls underneath the umbrella of anxiety disorders. It's an anxiety disorder in the same way that like, post-traumatic stress disorder is, is, I believe, considered part of the general anxiety disorder family, I think. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure. It's just a more elaborate, like, sort of, I don't know, it's sort of like, If a panic attack is like a bare bones stage production of Hamlet, (laughs) agoraphobia has a lot of bells and whistles and like chandeliers descending from the ceiling and and lights going off. It's just it's just a little flashier, you know, because you're it's a little weirder because you're um, you're afraid of something specific, which is. Generally speaking, it's travel or being in public. It's the
0: Versace of mood disorders.
1: Exactly. Yes, it is the Versace of mood disorders. It's just, it's very specific, it's expensive. Some My Abilify is very expensive. <laughs> Um, Some
0: people wear it well. Other people look ridiculous with agoraphobia. <laughs>
1: exactly. I like to think I'm wearing it well and mm-hmm. that I've made it work for me by conning people into paying me money to hear me talk about it. Um, I travel to colleges and talk about uh, mental health awareness a lot. So that's, that's fun. I that must really be like very that.
0: gratifying.
1: It's great. It's really great. And there are always kids who stay afterwards and want to talk privately. And, you know, sometimes they're kids who are wearing their weirdness on the outside. And so they've got, you know, like I have tattoos, and they've got tattoos and piercings, and they, you know, have dyed their hair weird colors and have odd fingernails. And then sometimes it's just these very student council, you know, upright citizens looking kids. And then sometimes... It'll occasionally, I'll get like a football player or a hockey star, or, um, and so it's a real nice, it's a real interesting mix. Definitely a lot of the LGBTQ kids will stay and talk, or, or of the kids that stay, a lot of times they're LGBT affiliated, but, um, but sometimes it's just like Johnny American football player. And that actually, I actually like that the most because those are the kids who, I think are less likely to talk about it. Like if you're in an LGBTQ awareness group, um, you're already talking about feelings and you're already talking about differences and, and hardship. If you're a, you know, stereotypical good looking jock dude, probably your bros aren't talking to you much about your depression or your anxiety or your mother's depression or anxiety.
0: And the other thing that I think that is important about that, too, about people like that coming forward is it helps dispel the myth that if you're good looking and you're successful, that you can't be unhappy.
1: Right. Or
0: popular. You know, that popularity is an antidote to (laughs) depression or loneliness.
1: Exactly. That you can suffer from. I mean, I knew a kid in high school who was like captain of the football team and um he was at a different school than me but he was the captain of the football team and he was most likely to succeed and best looking and had a full football scholarship and he killed himself when we were seniors and um i remember that at be at 18 that really struck me because i had bought into the lie that we're fed which is that if you have a a high social status, you won't be sad. If you're surrounded by people at all times, you'll never be lonely. And that clearly was not true for him. And I remember it really affected me so deeply. I still think about him all the time. Um, Because he – it made the papers, and and we were in the New York metro area, so it made the New York papers, it made the Philly papers, because everyone was so baffled that this good-looking, really good-looking, really successful kid – had killed himself and and done it in a really spectacular way he set himself on fire What? Yeah, in his parents' uh, or his grandmother's bathroom. He like went he got filled a Gatorade bottle up with gasoline while everybody was asleep and he drank some of it and then poured the rest on himself and he lit himself on fire. And this was like a kid who I knew from this academic summer camp that was run by the state of New Jersey that was for people with good grades and who did student council and you know a lot of type A popular You know Tracy Glick from Election type. That was a flick. Tracy Flick was that her name for Election? Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Type. Great movie. movie. Yeah, it's awesome. And it was a lot of those types who were all thrown together.
0: You know, I've heard it said that the manner in which people kill themselves says a lot. Yeah. Um, Like for instance, I had a a female friend who shot herself with a large caliber handgun, and uh, the. Psychiatrist or whatever was saying that that it, it, it's unusual for women to use guns on themselves and that shows an extra kind of degree of self self hatred. I can't imagine what somebody drinking gasoline and lighting themselves on fire what that says about the the amount of self hatred they they were in.
1: Oh yeah, the level of pain and 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 the belief perhaps that one needed to be purified in some way by fire that one deserved the punishment of that incredible pain um is is something that has baffled me to this day that i've always wanted to get to the bottom of and i've never quite known how i've always wanted to just find out like what what is the reason but you know he took those reasons with him probably um i don't know if he left a note behind or not and um So it's I mean, it's fascinating. It's it's sad, uh, of course, but I've sort of sat with the story for so many years that it's it's more like a mystery to me now. Like, why? Why did he do that? And why did he do it in that way? What did he feel was so wrong with him that he needed to be punished or did he look at it as? Maybe he looked at it as some kind of sacrifice he was making or who knows what someone is thinking of. My my aunt is a psychoanalyst and she said to me once that um, a lot of times suicide is not an act of depression. It is an act of anxiety. It is an act of terror and fear of incredible discomfort. Like, I cannot live with this feeling anymore. I have to escape it. And um, so I wonder, you know, where he was where he was mentally at that time.
0: So you would say it's it's more of a not I'm I'm hopeless. It's more of I'm cornered and it's closing in on me.
1: I think it's sort of like um, she said that sometimes the the act is not just I'm so sad. Like you know, like people stereotype think I'm just sad. I'm just gonna end it. It's like holy shit. I feel terrible. Maybe I feel sad. I feel different things, but there's like a panic to it. Like, and Mm. this is never going to get better. So for some people it's like, I don't know. I was listening to um, national public radio as I do as a good liberal. And um, they were talking to someone who's an expert in suicide. And it was saying that there sometimes is a very, especially in adolescence, there's a very short period of time between when someone has an idea to commit suicide and when they make the attempt. Sometimes it's just a few minutes in adolescence. And one way that in Great Britain they lowered the the suicide rate um, was really simple, which was that they changed the packaging of a particular drug that was very popular um, and used in, in overdoses a lot. And instead of putting the pills all in a bottle, they um, had them put in blister packs, so that it was harder to take them all at once. So Mm. what they wanted to experiment with was to see if having to take the, like so many extra steps of just pushing out these pills, if that extra time would make people rethink it. And apparently deaths by that form of suicide went down quite dramatically. Wow. Um, which is with that particular drug because it was just, it was the, it was more difficult to do it.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, where would be a good place to, to start with, with your story? Um, you want to talk about your childhood your family life
1: um i guess a good place to start would be that i started having panic attacks probably when i was about 10 years old and i
0: couldn't handle the double digits could you
1: yeah i was like this is fucked up (laughs) i can't take fifth grade this is crazy um I uh, I guess it started when I was about 10 years old and got worse and worse um, over the years. When I was 16, I went on medication, but it really wasn't helpful. It was just sort of a pill that I swallowed and I wasn't an educated healthcare consumer as most 16-year-olds are not. And so I didn't realize there were other options for me. And I didn't realize that if I wanted to, I could explore those other options. And And I didn't realize that certain drugs don't work great for certain people. And so, I just kept taking this pill because in my head I was like, "This is the cure. If I take this and it doesn't work, that means I'm beyond help." And I was always afraid of having to be put in a hospital. I was always very afraid of that. Like they'll, they'll have to take me away. They'll have to put me in a hospital. I'll have to be restrained. That was. I was always very afraid. So it of that. was the
0: last house on the block in your in your mind. This the, if this pill doesn't work.
1: Yes, this is the only oh, thing that so can sad. possibly help. Yeah, I just didn't realize that. Um, that there were other options there and so i just kept taking it and taking it it kept not working and not working except that i was you know getting headaches and some side effects from it sexual side effects at a you know at that age i wasn't having you know sex but i was heavy petting and um so
0: we have to find a better a better a better phrase for that 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 phrase and and i use it too sometimes but that phrase it, I can just see a guy that came up with that, smoking a pipe, wearing a cardigan.
1: Yeah, like heavy petting. <laughs> I mean, it is more elegant than saying finger-blasting, yes. probably. But finger-blasting is more evocative in many yeah. ways. Um, so I was having trouble with finger-blasting <laughs> um, at, at an age where, you know, you should really be enjoying that. And um, I was having... Cool
0: what was the 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 problem was you achieving
1: were too- orgasm was difficult oh i see okay so it was kind of
0: dulled your sexuality yes, was dulled it
1: did and yeah. so at, at the age where it's like ripe and going nuts and um
0: and were you blaming yourself or do you know it was a side effect of the pill
1: um i'm pretty sure it was a side effect of the pill because things had been hunky dory for a while oh, and then okay. i went on the pill and it really changed the 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 pills that i was on um really changed that for a few years and actually um up until i was 20 years old or when no i was 21 when i had a, a real nervous breakdown um in college and had to drop out of school and switch to Prozac and within weeks the difference was apparent i mean i wasn't having sex at that time but um within weeks the difference was apparent in terms of how i felt physically how i felt emotionally positively really w- a wonderful change
0: what was the the previous drug
1: oh, it's Paxil i took okay. Paxil and um which now, you know, has a black box warning for um, for use in uh, adolescence. However, uh, the thing about black box warnings is that they sound really scary, but it's just that every time an adverse event or AE takes place, like it has to be reported to the FDA by the drug company. So you get a certain number of them and it's time for among a certain population and it's time for a warning Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to affect everybody in a negative way or that it, you know, pushed me towards suicidal thoughts or something like that. Um, so I, I mean, I grew up with a dad who works in pharmaceuticals and I worked briefly for pharmaceutical executive magazine. Very exciting. And so, um... So I know a little bit about this stuff. I'm not hugely educated, but I know that just because something has a black box warning or just because one person or two people or three people or even 10 people say, oh, I had a bad side effect from this drug, that doesn't mean that the next 100 people are going to.
0: Yeah, that's that's an important distinction. I'm, I'm glad you made that.
1: Yeah, because I, I don't want to demonize that drug. It didn't work for me, but it's worked great for some other people.
0: Oh, yeah. I've been on drugs that I was miserable on, dry mouth and, you know, Anxious and sweaty palms, and just didn't work for me. And then another drug will work, and a friend of mine will have had terrible reaction oh, to yeah. the drug that works for me.
1: They'll be, I mean, I have female friends who have had horrible reactions to um, oral contraceptives where they uh, became suicidal. I've never had that problem with them. Like I just haven't. It just I'm I'm lucky in that way that they don't affect me in that way, or I haven't thus far. Um, so different people react differently to the same drugs, even yeah. people who seem to have the same symptoms. It's a really inexact science um, yes, pharmaceuticals
0: yeah, it really is I'm still
1: figuring that shit out
0: and I think that's one of the things that that makes it such a difficult process for people because when you're depressed, you have difficulty making decisions. yes, and when things are gray, you avoid gray things and it's easier to just sleep mm-hmm
1: Yeah, I've been having a tough time the past few days with um, getting deadlines done. I'm a freelance writer. um, And so with executing like stuff on deadline and stuff, it's been tough because I've just been feeling kind of down and not, not, um, I mean, I think it's been triggered by like specific issues. It's not that kind of darkness that descends out of nowhere where you're just like oh i feel like shit or that descends seemingly out of nowhere i should say um it's the specific things that have been bothering me but um but yeah it's been hard to like hit those targets i find that what helps me actually and this is odd i think but a very effective antidepressant booster for me is um iced coffee Really? Yeah, I find if I I use I use coffee medicinally. <laughs> like I don't drink it every day. Um, I if I'm having sluggish in that depressed way and I'm having trouble focusing, um, and I just want to sleep, I'll usually let myself sleep for a little while. I have that luxury because I make my own schedule as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. But um, but iced coffee, oftentimes it's um, it's the the coldness and the caffeine just get me to a place where suddenly I can focus. And I also will go out among people. I'll go out in a coffee shop or some we Starbucks, whatever, or, or a local independent organic, biodynamic <laughs> homegrown <laughs> coffee shop um, like we have here in Highland. Beautiful Highland Park in the east side of Los Angeles. Um, I will, I'll do that. That's another thing that's an important antidepressant is being around uh, people. You don't have to talk to them. Like, for me, I, I don't have to talk to these motherfuckers. Like, I don't need to the energy- be friends with them. I just need to hear that there's people around.
0: I, I totally get that. I force myself to go to uh, a coffee place and and write sometimes. Or just to check my email, just to get out of the house, to break up my routine. Mm-hmm. To feel the energy of humanity swirling around me while I ignore
1: it. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> to feel yeah. the energy of humanity swirling around me while I ignore it. Yeah, it's... it's um, sometimes it... Sometimes things like uh background noise of people or um music if I'm in my car um will occupy the some of the the louder you know more annoying like demons
0: and the, you know the other thing that I think is is nice about forcing yourself to go do that without you know saying, I'm going to meet somebody here, but I'm just going to go there, is then you might have a chance encounter with a stranger, and you don't have time to sit and obsess about it and get anxious and predict how it's going to go badly. All of a sudden, you're chatting with somebody for five minutes, and then it's done, and you're like, oh, that was nice, and you feel like, at least I do, I feel like a little boost from it. Whereas if that person had called and said, hey, let's meet for coffee, I would have ruminated about it, and oh, you know, I should be doing this, and the, then you're just kind of open to that when you when you go there just to be among the among the flow. The option is there to integrate if you want to, and if you don't feel like it, you don't have to.
1: Yeah, it's and it's and it's a good feeling when you see someone you know and you like, and it's a surprise when you've been in this place where you've been isolated and you've made yourself go out of the house it's like a nice surprise when you see someone you know and and they recognize you and there's something about being recognized being acknowledged as existing as it that sort of affirms your value in a sense it affirms your presence as a human being and that's so valuable because when you're depressed you can feel like you're disappearing and like you, you just aren't there and they don't matter.
0: That feeling of invisibility and, and it's almost sometimes like when people will address you and say your name you're almost kind of shocked that people can see you. So you started having panic attacks when you were 10 Um Then you finally found a med that worked when you were in your 20s, you
1: said? 21, yeah. I had a nervous breakdown and descended pretty deep into agoraphobia. Um, Was this
0: during college? During college. Because you wrote another blog about that, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. Yeah. uh, Tell me the title of it again.
1: Um,
0: College isn't awesome for everyone. When
1: when college isn't awesome, I think it might be called. When I I go to colleges, I do a talk that I, I sort of call when college isn't awesome and it's just about the fact that most college fucking sucks so sometimes the points in your life that you are told are the greatest and most amazing i'm sure you know getting married going on a honeymoon would probably be examples like you can have panic attacks on a honeymoon you can have panic attacks in college you can have panic attacks um at your dream job you can have panic attacks on the set of the movie that you're starring in like you can go through difficult times Um, even when all the circumstances point to happiness. Um, Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. And you can find yourself, you know, sobbing uh, and and that's okay. You're not a freak. You're not a weirdo. You're a human being who's going through something tough. Let's
0: get back to your your life and your situation and your anxiety and your... your. I, I'm more curious to know about the agoraphobia. We haven't talked about that a lot on this podcast. Um, paint a picture for me.
1: Okay. Um, so agoraphobia for me at the worst point was me staying in... restricting myself largely to one section of my studio apartment in Boston. So just being in... Uh, I was trying to stay in my bed to the point where... I would urinate in bowls and in jars and like hide them under my bed. Um, even though no one was coming to look for them. Um, and so that, I mean, if I had to like take a shit, I would go to the bathroom. I never got to a place I never got. I was like, I was like, that's just crazy. I'm never, I've never get into that place. But, um, I wasn't bathing, uh, I wasn't going out to buy food, I wasn't doing going interacting with Were people. Were you just starving? I was hungry, yeah, but then eventually you get you get used to it and so then you're not um and there's a certain pleasure in it when you are uh trying to disappear physically the i've heard it described that way once that it's that that i heard it was description of anorexia was that you know anorexics aren't trying to get thin they're trying to disappear and which i thought was so great that the way that that person put it and sometimes that's true and with me um it was a relief to get smaller and smaller i was like oh this is awesome soon i will disappear um when when you
0: have a fear... Like, I can understand the fear of leaving your apartment. Walk me through the fear of leaving your bed to go pee. Um, is it a fear or is it is it that it just... it? What does it feel like that is between you and just getting up to pee?
1: I think you just get addicted to the soothing drug that is sleep and... Um the bed becomes when you're an agoraphobe you paint yourself quite almost literally into a corner. You start splattering paint on all the places where you have panic attacks, so you start with say specifically Star market on newberry street, which i don 't even know if it exists um, but and then that expands from not just star market but uh, you know you you 're at Whole Foods and you have there was a place called Bread and Circus in Boston back then you uh, You have a panic attack at the organic grocery store, not just at the standard grocery store so now you're you 're not going to you decide you know what it 's not the grocery store I go to it 's all grocery stores, so you sort of paint. Over them, and you can't be there. Um, Then you go to a record
0: shop. And is this a thing that you are just feeling, or is it a thing that you're thinking intellectually, or is it both?
1: Uh, I think it was unconscious, largely unconscious for me. I it's your sort of um, animal child brain is is thinking like. Something bad happened there. Don't go there. Something bad happened there. Don't go to places that look like there. Something bad happened there. Don't go to any place located near there. So it's not, it becomes, you know, from one store to the entire block to the whole street to a whole town to, you know, whatever. You start to eliminate places that are, um, that you decide are unsafe.
0: So it's like you're listening to your gut, but in the worst way possible because your gut is kind of.
1: Is your gut has gone wild? Your Guts gut has gone, gone wild. wild because
0: oftentimes, you know, I say listen to your body. You know what your body is is, is telling you, but obviously that can backfire when it when it comes to something like, like well, when this. it becomes
1: like a tyrant. When you, I think you need to be in balance, and and when you have sort of given up on listening to common sense and are instead just listening to your base primal animal fears without bringing to bear some logic, then yeah, I think it can be bad. I mean, I think ideally it's in balance now. I mean, the listen to your body stuff is great advice. Like listening to your gut, trying to feel where in your body you're feeling particular emotion. Like that's all awesome. Um, It's in, in this case it was just, um, but that's because it's a conscious choice. And in this case it was just being very unconscious. And making choices depending on what my like lizard brain was doing.
0: And when you would, let's say, you had a fear of grocery stores, and you would, for some reason, have to go into a grocery store, what describe what you feel in your in your body and in your in your mind?
1: Um, I guess a panic attack I describe as the exact inverse of an orgasm (laughs) it's like the worst thing that you've ever felt in your life that you don't want you every moment you wish would stop um and so it's like that it feels like um it also feels like the moment before you puke when you're really drunk or, or just sick the moment before you puke um before you get that relief of throwing up that really sick moment that's what it feels like to me and it feels like that way emotionally and physically you just feel such terror and fear and and um Actual nausea and and just blech. um, well, so it feels like that want to avoid
0: that. I mean, yeah, my you have God. enough of
1: them. I mean, if you're not being treated properly or being treated at all, and you have enough of, of of those experiences, it's it's. I also say, you know, if every time you left your house somebody punched you in the stomach, eventually you'd stop leaving your house because uh, you'd real- and, and that was how it became. It was like a, a, it was just a sock to the gut constantly. So I just I had my little area that I. I could maintain um,
0: and were you starting to get those experiences in different parts of your apartment and that's why you stuck to the bed or the bed just felt so good compared to the rest of the apartment
1: Um, I was starting to get really heavy anxiety in other parts of the apartment. It became very safe to just stay in the bed. So really painting myself into a literal corner, just a corner of my room. And I stopped going to class, which does wonders for your GPA. And I stopped socializing, which does wonders for your social life. And so so eventually I really had, like I would say, a full-on nervous breakdown and needed to get help. And... Um, thankfully I had a couple of best friends, Catherine and Alexandra, who are still my best friends today, who both of whom, um, you know, real came, either came over or talked to me on the phone or something and, and got out of me that something bad was going on and called my parents to tell them that they needed to come get me. And so my mom came up and got me one night and brought me home, uh, to New Jersey And I started therapy there and then made an aborted and ill-fated attempt to go back to college early the next semester. And that didn't work out. Um, I kept having panic attacks. And so then I was home and home and going through therapy. And um, I was home for, I guess, eight months living in my parents' house and eventually working up to leaving the house again to... Driving again to holding down a job to applying to colleges and then eventually move to I have a tattoo on my arm of North Carolina and there's a heart over Asheville, North Carolina, which is where I went to college uh, at a place called Warren Wilson College. That's where I ended up um, after dropping out of Emerson College. So uh, and I love it very much, which is why I have it permanently tattooed on my arm. Um, so that was a very wonderful, very healing experience being at this this this. Um, being at the next school that I went to. And what do you credit
0: being able to enjoy your second college experience?
1: Uh, drugs and therapy, for sure. Drugs and therapy before I got there and drugs and therapy while I was there. Absolutely.
0: And still drugs and therapy? Still, I know, yeah. I, mean, I know you said drugs, but still therapy.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah, I am... Um, i have a therapist i have a psychiatrist i don't have health insurance so it's expensive i mean my abilify for is um uh how much is it it is 425 dollars a month and so wow yeah prozac is like maybe 50 bucks because it's generic abilify hasn't gone generic yet i think it goes generic in like 2014 or something like that um and they can always apply for patent extensions and things to kind of milk their suffering population for as much as they're worth, um, and make it harder for people to get it. But um, I don't make uh, I I don't meet the income qualifications for Bristol Myers Squibs, uh, the manufacturer's um, like low cost or no cost program. Yet I don't have enough money to easily cover it yet i was denied health insurance by two different companies um i think aetna blue and kaiser permanente i think um be here in california because of my preexisting condition of uh depression and anxiety so i can't afford the pills because i don't have health insurance but i can't get health insurance because i need the pills <laughs> so it's kind of fucked so i'm waiting for for my um to join the uh Pre-existing condition high risk pool under Obamacare, which I'm so excited about, which is um, for me will be April 1st of this year, which is 2013. Sweet. So I'm very excited about that to get my Obamacare, but um, and thank God for it. Um, I, and I can, you know, I can afford it. Um, I have to ask my parents for help sometimes. With you know, they've paid for it a few months, I've paid for it a few months, um, but it's very helpful. So I keep taking it
0: so what what other seminal moments from your from your life would be should we touch on? Oh, i guess hmm what was what was uh home life like as a as a kid?
1: Um, it was tense sometimes. I had a dad who dealt with anxiety and a mom who dealt with depression. I got the double whammy, as my mom will say. I got both. Um, My brother apparently got neither. And he is, however, a psych nurse today. He said to me, like you know, growing up in our house was like being a psych nurse <laughs> or something to that effect once he said to me. Um, or it was like studying psych. And uh, so I got the combination of my parents' issues, I think. Um, they sort of expressed themselves fully in me. And so it was tense, you know. Uh, you, if When you grow up with, with parents who are suffering in their own right, in different ways, you become parentified a little bit as a child, and you start to, um, you know, maybe behave in ways that aren't childlike, but that you're not quite ready to take on. And um, because
0: you're concerned about them, and you feel like there's kind of a delicacy with with their situation that you don't want your needs to be too expressed.
1: I think there's that. I think there's also a sense of walking on eggshells because you don't want to disturb the peace when there is peace. I think when you've got. Two different people um, in your house who are both dealing with mental health issues or emotional issues or what have you, uh, there's a chance that somebody could go off at any moment, that somebody could, you know, flare up at any moment. And so you learn to be hypervigilant, really scan the situation, always looking for signs that something could be coming. I didn't grow up in a physically abusive household or a sexually abusive household or anything like that. Um, it was just, you know, you as a kid, it's scary when mom or dad freaks out about something that seemingly isn't that big of a deal to you. So you learn to stay tense and ready, always at the ready Um and to react in whatever way soothes that parent. I mean, I'm sure they would say I wasn't always the most soothing child, but um, that's part of it, too. I mean, you get to adolescence and part of it is, well, I'm not going to react in a soothing way when you freak out. I'm going to react in a fucked up way. I'm going to fan the flames. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I wouldn't say it was like a super dramatic upbringing or anything like that, I mean, married parents, nice house in the suburbs, very safe area, um, sports and dance and other things I was bad at, good grades and all that. But um, but there were definitely some some issues for sure that I think contributed to who and how I am today for better and for worse.
0: I would imagine the bulk of kids have some variation on on that you know if it's not if it's not a parent that is dealing with mental illness you know maybe there's some one parents overly anxious or there's a you know a lack of communication mm-hmm. i i haven't really met many people that came from an environment that that wasn't that didn't have some type of emotional challenge to it
1: yeah i think it's part of being human um they were reacting in their own ways to the ways in which they were raised and and the things that they encountered and um you know you come together with somebody else you create a family and then you apply the lessons you've learned to you or, or rather you apply the techniques that you've learned to child rearing i think and um sometimes i was talking to my therapist about this sometimes we look for and do what is familiar rather than what is right or what is healthy? Because familiarity is comforting, even if it's fucked up. I mean, you look at women who return to abusive men over and over again, for example. Um, there is a comfort in the familiarity, because at least, even if even if you don't know what's coming next, at least you're used to the not knowing. It's you know, for some folks, it, it would be weird to be with someone in a relationship who was stable, had their shit together, and when they were angry said, "I'm angry," rather than "fuck you."
0: Yeah, it's like it's like a play you've rehearsed. It's easier to jump into the play, the sick play you've rehearsed than to try to learn your lines in a play that's mm-hmm. that you've never heard before. I Absolutely. mean, that's that's got to be even more terrifying than a spouse that is you know, unpredictable.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. or
0: angry or, or, or whatever. Yeah, our comfort zone in, in so many ways can be our biggest enemy. You know, yes. The familiarity.
1: Yeah, we're, our fear of the unknown is so primal as human beings, our, our terror of the unknown. It really is. It's so huge that we will do anything to avoid it. Do you think that that's...
0: A remnant of what we needed genetically to survive
1: oh sure i think you you know you stick with the pack and you stick to places known areas and you stick to um you stick to that which is familiar i think it's it makes sense for safety wise i mean before we were living in houses with security systems and locks on the door and possibly you know guns with locked up somewhere and weapons and all these different things um If you're just, you know, your only protection is your tribe or your pack, um, I I would think that, that, you know, yeah, sticking to the familiar is of the utmost importance.
0: So any other seminal moments, things you kind of want to touch on from from your life?
1: I would say that when that guy died, his name was Sam. When he died... The high school friend. The high school friend, yeah. When he died, that was a really seminal moment for me because it it shook up what everything that I had known known or thought about, learned about, been taught about what success meant because he was the embodiment of success in so many ways. He was you know, the, he was almost unreal because he was so good at school, friendly, handsome, charming, great at sports, great at everything. It was like sickening. He was almost kind of annoying because he was so good at everything. And then when he died, it really shook me up in a way that is pretty profound that I don't think I've ever quite, I've never gotten past or gotten over. If I could write, a book about him and spend time exploring him, his world and the people who knew him um i certainly would i don't think that that's necessarily i would not assume that would be something that that his family would necessarily be open to in any way shape or form um but if if for some reason i were permitted to do that i would spend a lot of time like investigating that that mystery and seeing if I could come up with any answers probably wouldn't be able to
0: you know I'm sure every other person probably thought this same thought that I did you know was he was gay and Mm -hmm. and probably had a a parent that you know was homophobic or, or or whatever did that was that a thought that crossed your mind when it when it happened was...
1: No, no. I thought more... Um, I wondered if he had been sexually assaulted. I, I wondered if he had sexually assaulted anybody. I wondered if... Um, I wondered about about guilt. There seemed to be some kind of punishment that he was administering to himself pretty, pretty wildly. And so I wondered, what does he feel guilty about? Is it something he did? Something that was done to him? Um, so it certainly could have been, you know, it could have been that he was secretly gay, but, uh, I don't, I don't, f- I, that, something that, that seems
0: a- too, too. um, the way he killed himself seems to the too much guilt for it to be.
1: If there was, it was something, I mean, he was, you know, very Catholic, but, um, it seemed to me that there was something else going on there, something very big, and I don't know what it was. Um. But, you know, I'll never know.
0: I had a neighbor um, growing up who drove his car into a brick wall purpose- wow. purposefully, and he was another Sam,
1: mm-hmm.
0: super super nice guy. Was at medical school. Oh wow. Um, was, but there was so much drama in this in this family like a super mean dog, you know, that somebody was kind of torturing and his younger brother was the one that molested me. Oh wow. And so I always kind of wonder what, what was, what were the secrets he was, he was taking.
1: Yeah. I mean, his younger brother probably learned that behavior from somewhere, maybe not from him, but maybe from dad, maybe from mom, like who knows? Yeah.
0: But that's that you know that stuff will ruminate in your mind for. I still think about about him to this.
1: Yeah, you just wonder like somebody who seems to have it all, and yet you obviously have some more insight into his background. That was his background was pretty fucked up. And,
0: and, and he, this is the I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but this is the piece that really haunts me about him. Was we heard years later that you know for years it was it was an accident right you know and then you began to hear that you know that he was driving 60 miles an hour straight into a viaduct wow and then some years later after that a report came out that somebody who had rushed to the scene his car was on fire he was in the car they went to try to open the door and he locked it wow
1: yeah, that's somebody who's very determined to achieve his end. Yeah. I, I've read frequently that m- while women attempt suicide more often than men, men complete suicide more often than women. Often in these more dramatic ways that, like with women, it, it seems like it tends to be, um, you know, self-harm through cutting I suppose suicide is the ultimate self-harm but cutting your wrists or taking pills seem to be very popular whereas with men it seems to be hanging yourself shooting yourself driving your car into something we're go-getters yeah you guys know how to get we're doers you know how to get shit done you're talkers yeah
0: we're just blah 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 we make sure the rubber hits the road (laughs) even if it's around our neck hi (laughs) um you know it, the difference between suicide and and self-harm i i think like on paper they they would seem to be related but from the things that i've read of women that self-harm and then is it's it's um a way of of letting their feelings out because their feelings it's almost like their feelings are backing up and they can't take the intensity of their feelings anymore. Yeah, it's a release. It's a release. Mm-hmm. A release. And I guess I, I suppose suicide would be considered a release too. So, um,
1: But a lot of people who self-harm have no intent of killing themselves. Right. It's just it's something they do as maintenance. It's, it's almost like um, sometimes they'll say uh, a psychologist will say like you know put a rubber band around your wrist and every time you start to have that bad thought snap it um i don't know if that works to me that sounds kind of like fucked up advice but um i think it's sort of like snapping that rubber band just you know in a a more kind of elaborate way
0: yeah any other
1: seminal moments hmm well i guess you know
0: or issues or you know anything you want to
1: I guess, you know, I went into another depression in 2011 as I was finishing my book, Agoraphabulous, which is about agoraphobia, depression, anxiety. But it's funny. Buy it at a retailer near you. (laughs) It's on the Amazons, etc. Um, I... I went into a depression again, and I had been um, dating this guy who was deployed to Afghanistan. Who was he was a soldier, so there was that. And I just and my book was due, and I just like lost it when he left, and really went into this deep, deep, deep depression. And that's when I started taking Abilify along with the Prozac because suddenly the Prozac wasn't cutting it anymore at, at the high dose that I take. And um, so it's I, I guess. What that drove home to me is something that I've known for a long time, but it really drove home to me the fact that this is a lifelong struggle, this depression thing, and that this isn't something that's just going to magically disappear one day. It's great to think, oh, well, maybe I'll, you know, one day I won't need medication, but I honestly think I'll be taking something for the rest of my life, and I'm okay with that now. That sort of that time, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, when I got so extraordinarily, you know, depressed again, really taught me a lesson and oh i should add actually that i I forgot that i had stopped taking medication at all a few months before so it was like four months before naturally naturally so like you think you know you find out your gentleman caller is getting deployed to afghanistan and you should be like yeah i'm not gonna take my drugs anymore but i had been doing great for 10 years so i was like i've been doing great for 10 years i don't need these drugs anymore uh and then you know at, at first you're fine and then four months later you fall down a hole so um then get climbing back out of the hole and Prozac and adding on uh, Abilify to that. So, I guess my my number one takeaway would be don't go off your medication without doctor's supervision. Yeah. (laughs) America and the rest of the world. Really. Even if it's gross and it's causing you bad side effects, call, give your doctor a phone, call first.
0: And consider what the side effects are of not being on medication.
1: Yes. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Abilify can cause weight gain. I joined Weight Watchers; it helps. And you know that it there are things that you can do to um, offset the different side, some of the different side effects.
0: Uh, I started taking mirtazapine because I I needed just an an extra the the other ones i was doing weren't completely cutting it anymore and it started working great but i put on 15 pounds because one of the side effects is weight gain Mm -hmm. and i was thrilled when it stopped working because i was like yes now i can get off it and and find something else but
1: uh yeah
0: it's uh that that you know the weight gain man that
1: oh it's a pain in the ass the weight, and i feel bad for people who are bipolar or schizophrenic who are taking drugs at higher doses um from what i understand particularly people with bipolar will just gain weight but it's like i heard carrie fisher talking about it and she was just like yeah i gained the weight so i could raise my kid and like not fucking die so that's why i don't look like i did in a gold bikini anymore sorry (laughs) she did her great i saw her live doing wishful drinking um which was wonderful and uh that made that show made a great impression on me go see wishful drinking everyone go rent it it is delightful
0: anything else you want to touch on
1: no I think I'm good I think i'm uh I think I'm good this has been really nice thank you
0: yeah do you wanna do you want to try to improvise some uh some fears and
1: loves sure yeah let's do that let's do some improv I start an improv class next week I've been told it will help my stand up that may be bullshit but we'll see what happens
0: uh I'll start I'm afraid that I talk about myself too much on the podcast and it turns people off.
1: I am afraid that I talk about myself too much with my friends and that they think I'm selfish.
0: I am afraid that I am sinking into a depression so slowly I can't really see it and that no med is going to help me get out of it.
1: I am afraid that I will continue to gain weight and not be able to shrink my FUPA, which is a fat upper pussy area. (laughs) It's a tummy situation. I could just say tummy, but FUPA sounds better. Um, But that is a legitimate fear.
0: Is that also known as your GUNT?
1: Uh I think so, yes. It's it's more pronounced in women who've had babies usually. Um so it isn't mine isn't quite as low down as as that, but yeah, it's definitely a, a belly situation that yeah. I'm addressing.
0: I laughed so hard the first time I heard the word Gund. gunt. Gunt is like great. oh my god. Gunt is a great that- word. <laughs> um I am afraid I am afraid of the sound I'm going to make when I pee in your bathroom as soon as we stop recording. I've had to pee for the last 20 minutes, and I'm afraid it's going to sound like Niagara Falls in there.
1: That's totally fine. Let me just reassure you that uh, you know you heard me pee. That's fine. We, I didn't. Oh, you I know didn't. you went in
0: to pee, but I didn't hear anything. Well, I probably
1: won't hear you pee either. Right. So I, I am afraid. What am I afraid of? There's so many fucking things I'm afraid of. Um, I am afraid of getting into a car accident on the freeway in Los Angeles, uh, and I envision it all the time. I picture that happening often.
0: Do you picture you hitting someone else or them hitting you, or you don't really picture the the details of it?
1: I don't really. I picture both. I don't really picture the details. Usually, I guess I'm more afraid of hitting. I am afraid of hitting a person who is walking, because then I would definitely be at fault. (laughs) Whereas... If it's two cars, you know, maybe it's their fault, maybe it's my fault, I've got a chance. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of getting into a car accident, really anywhere.
0: I'm afraid that I think I stick up for not my needs, but I'm really doing a half-assed job of it and don't know it.
1: Mm-hmm. I am afraid of catheters. (laughs) I'm afraid of giving birth for many reasons, one of which is that apparently when you are in the hospital and pregnant, you get a catheter, which just sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard of in my life. Um, That's something I think about like pretty frequently.
0: (laughs) Uh, I I had a guest who had to, she was hospitalized and they had to put a catheter uh, in her. And I don't, I don't even understand where a catheter goes.
1: I've had it, it once before it goes inside well it goes inside the urethra.
0: Right, but I, I can't even I can't even picture like with a guy I can understand, oh there's the pee hole. That's mm-hmm. where it goes in, but I can't even um
1: oh it just goes in our lady pee hole. I've had one once before which is why I fear it so much because it yeah. was so fucking painful. I
0: mean clearly ladies have to have a pee hole. Yeah, gross the, he has to come out of somewhere, but um, it's,
1: we have like a bunch of holes. <laughs> it's very complicated. I want you to put
0: that on your headstone.
1: I will put that on my headstone. We have like a bunch of holes, yeah. and casa.:
0: I was five minutes away from having to get a catheter put in uh, when I had a hernia operation about uh, twenty years ago, and because I there was a lot of swelling. And so the pee wasn't coming out, and they're like, all right, you got five more minutes to pee. And I have never felt such pressure to pee in my life. And there was just like a little drip came out, and I was like,
1: yeah, I, like I, I did it.
0: Oh, my God. Because just the thought of a tube going up there. Um,
1: it feels bad. I've had what's called a cystoscopy, I think is what it's called, where they pump, they pump put a little this is going to give everybody panic attacks they um they there's a little camera a little tiny bitty camera uh, on the end of a uh, catheter they and they feed it up into your business so they can take a peek around and um it's deflated right so the catheter's deflated they they feed it in there and then they uh they inflate it and they pump dye in from the outside oh my to see God. and so you've got all these cameras in your junk and on you and um they pump dye in from the outside i'm sure it's called something else Um, and uh, to see how full your bladder can get and if any of the dye shoots back up to your kidneys because they wanted to see if I had urinary reflux. So anyway, uh, there was no... um, Are you sure you're not thinking of the St. Patrick's Day parade? (laughs) Oh, yes, the luck of the Irish. It's delightful. So it... uh, i don 't want to apparently some people get catheters and don 't give a fuck and it 's fine, maybe like you get some numbing agent or or you just don 't care so i don 't want to freak everybody out about catheters because i 've talked to plenty of people who are like yeah it 's no big deal, whatever, but for me, uh, my experience with it was traumatic. that was probably a seminal moment in my life when I was fifteen. That was a traumatic experience that has forever haunted me. Hence my fear of catheters. Maybe they're awesome. I just want a bedpan. I, Im- I would
0: imagine by by now that
1: I hope they're awesome. They've minimized.
0: Now. They've minimized the pain with all the things that they can do yeah. to make things more comfortable for people. Put
1: some numbing shit up in there. Yeah. Like just numb me. That's fine. I'll take a pill. Give me a shot. Whatever. Just do it. And if there's any doctors out there, email me sarah at sarahbenincasa dot com if you want to break it down about catheters for me. <laughs> Anybody who's got a good catheter information, I want to hear it.
0: Maybe we should start a catheter podcast.
1: Yeah, it'll just be called. Uh, it'll be called the PodCath. <laughs> yes, I, I did that. it. I'm a comedian. I knew there was
0: I, there was a, a a joke there, but I couldn't put
1: it's the PodCath. It. Yeah. Um,
0: let's go to loves. Let's do
1: that. I love when I'm driving down the highway or a street here in Los Angeles and I look up and I see a beautiful green hill studded with neat Mediterranean looking houses and trees and the clouds look cool and it's just beautiful. I love that. That's a great moment.
0: I love the unapologetic vulnerability and optimism in the voice of the singer of the Plain White Tees. On the song "Rhythm of Love," have you ever heard that song? Hmm,
1: is it that- is the
0: most beautiful, sweet song. Uh, if I ever do this this show live, it's it's the song that I, I want to play at the end. Of, uh, the end of it. It is just. It's everything that I want to feel. Like when I'm feeling good, mm-hmm. that is the. That song is the purest expression of what it feels like to feel love and and peace.
1: That's awesome. I hope they're listening, the Plain White Tees, oh or that God. someone, if you're friends with them, you should pass on this moment, because that would be to an artist. I mean, what a compliment.
0: It's it's such a great song. It's such a great song.
1: Your turn. My turn. Um, Let's see. Um, hmm. I love taking naps with cats
0: I I love taking naps with my dogs but that's not going to be mine because that's too much like yours (laughs) Um, I love that I was able to fix my bandsaw without having to pay someone to come do it even though it was a huge fucking pain in the ass and I had tremendous anxiety um, about not being able to do it I love that I was able to fix it
1: I love the house that we're in. I love this little bungalow that I found on Airbnb.com. Um, I, it is a very peaceful, loving, good place in which I feel good and safe. Even though at night I still fear, <laughs> back to fear, I still fear getting assaulted and attacked. Um, generally speaking, I feel very good and safe in this place. So I love this place.
0: Um, I love meeting funny people who know when to put their funny aside and be real and vulnerable and talk about stuff that might be embarrassing like you, like you.
1: Oh, thank you. I love doing that. <laughs> I love putting aside the funny uh, and talking about serious stuff once in a while, which is probably more than once in a while, actually. But that's really gratifying because I, I think that when our clowns uh, get serious, it makes more of an impression on us than when our, you know, serious folks get serious. It's not as much, you know, if if some jokester gets serious, it feels more like the truth than if some um, kind of dour person Mm -hmm. tells you something.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I love a potato pancake that is just the perfect amount of crispy and crunchy, and it's got the perfect amount of salt and ketchup on it.
1: I love naps. I love naps. (laughs) They can be used for ill or for good, but I do love a good nap.
0: I love the feeling after I get up from a nap and I have a a cup of green tea and the cloud that was over me before I took the nap has not only lifted, but now I got a little bit of a caffeine buzz and I'm kind of excited about life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's probably the the thing that I love about iced coffee and creativity is that when you push past the resistance to creating and get into the flow, I love that when you're excited about it. And sometimes iced coffee helps.
0: <laughs> Sweet. Well, um, I say we go out on that one.
1: Iced coffee and good times here in, in rainy, rainy Los Angeles today.
0: I also love a, a I love kind right. of a cloudy rainy day in Southern I, California.
1: Oh, it's the best. It's the best.
0: Well, Sarah, uh, thank you so much for, for being a guest and being so uh, so open and honest. And uh, as I mentioned before, people can go to your website, com. It's B-E-N-I-N-C-A-S-A.
1: Very good. And, I'm impressed.
0: Uh, and go buy her book, uh, Agora Fabulous, um, Dispatches from My Bedroom.
1: Yeah, and follow me on Twitter. It's at Sarah J. Benincasa. The J is for Juliana, in case anyone was wondering. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Well, I really, really appreciated her uh, her being a guest, and I got so much out of uh, so much out of talking to her. Many thanks to uh, to Sarah Benincasa. Um, before I take it out with uh, some surveys, want to remind you guys, uh, I'm going to be in Portland April 18th through the 21st, um, and uh, we're going to be doing a live Mental Illness Happy Hour show. I don't know the the date or time yet, but I will you, let you know as things get. Uh, Get going, and here's an idea that I have. I don't know what venue we could do it in yet, but in addition to the to the live show, I'm thinking I would love to bring a pile of surveys. I've I've got a a pile of surveys printed out to to my left, that is about a half a foot tall. I would love to bring a pile of surveys up there, plug a couple of mics in, and just have listeners drop by and sift through the pile and pick out surveys that they relate to or that triggers something in them that they want to talk about and uh just have them kind of um chat on the mic for for a few minutes have people kind of come in and and go out and do that for a for a couple of hours um let me know if that if that sounds fun to you guys I, i've already got about 15 people that i've been corresponding with that live up in portland that i want to um connect with uh in in one way or another either as a guest or go Grab a cup of coffee or something. Hopefully, we're we're gonna do some type of of listener hangout when uh, when I'm up there, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, what else did I want to share? Uh, oh, there are a couple of different ways to uh, support this show. If you feel so inclined, you can support it financially by going to the website mentalpod.com, making either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, the recurring monthly donation. Uh, you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month. You only have to sign up once, and then it just kind of takes care of itself until you decide to cancel. You can support us financially by shopping at Amazon through our search portal and our on our homepage. And then if you buy something, Amazon gives us a couple nickels. Doesn't cost you anything. You can also buy a t-shirt at our uh, at our uh, through our website. A Mental illness happy hour t-shirt. And I think there was some other financial thing that I'm not... Well, you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. And by spreading the word through social media. That uh, that really helps. Because um, the more we grow the show, the more people get to listen. And the closer I come to my dream of being able to support myself doing the, doing this show. Um I'm going to kick it off with... A survey from the Shame and Secret survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Skippy Doolittle. She's gay, she's in her 30s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. I don't remember much. Apparently when I was small, maybe six or so, my cousin convinced my brother and me to play around in the back room downstairs. We took off our clothes and I think we tried to practice giving blowjobs and putting their penises in my ass crack. I thought it was all very exciting and I didn't realize that it was wrong. The next night, I was sitting on my cousin's guest bed while he sat quietly, and I remember my dad came in, grabbed me, spanked me, and sent me to my room. We never talked about it, and I completely forgot about it until my mom blurted out while we were driving somewhere when I was 13 or 14. She reminded me in one sentence, and it was very shocking, like getting doused with ice water. But I don't know if, the, if it counts. We were all very young. My brother may have been eight. I don't know how old my cousin was. I don't know it was wrong, but I still feel deeply ashamed of it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I fantasize about being an injured hero all the time because it would mean that I am good and strong and that I am, uh, and that I am hurt so people have to take care of me and worry about whether I'm going to be okay. I use this to fall asleep every night that's that's sad and beautiful at the at the at the same time um, and i totally relate to that i totally relate to that feeling of wanting to be comforted and cared for and be thought of as as good that's very very moving to me um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I think my most potent fantasies are ones where I am a male and I'm taking advantage of a weaker person, forcing them to do what I want, and somehow, simultaneously, I envision what I am doing to the weaker party from the weaker party's eyes, forcing them to enjoy it. Huh. Until this very moment, I never associated that fantasy with my earliest sexual memory. That's one of the most powerful things about reading these surveys are when you see a light bulb or dots get connected in somebody's heart or their their head when they're filling these out and that's why i'm I'm constantly beating the drum for people to go to the therapy and go to support groups because you know if if this person is having that little tiny epiphany filling a survey out for a podcast, imagine what consistently going to a support group or therapy can can help you connect. Um, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, I have told my partner. She had been sexually violated when she was very young, but she has impressively the opposite fantasy, fantasizing about being taken advantage of. We actually have played out the scenarios with each other. It took a while to learn how to communicate effectively on our boundaries, testing each other, um, knowing before something went too far, but ultimately it was very rewarding. We both found something we needed and we shared it in a safe space with a safe person. That was good. That sounds beautiful. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? She writes, I think the childhood experience in the back room contributes to the fact that I feel completely disgusted by myself and my body. I feel like I'm always too stupid too oblivious, too trusting, and then I also feel like I'm a disgusting sack of rancid meat and maggots. I don't think that's descriptive enough, and I don't think you're hard enough on yourself. What What is the personality of the maggots like? I want to know that. I want to know that they're scheming maggots. Man, when we beat up on ourselves, we fucking go to town. Uh, She continues, and the idea that I would want someone to love me and take care of me makes me feel like I'm an idiotic fool. I don't deserve it. I'm horrible and disgusting. Repeating words, but it's how I feel. Oh, I just want to send you a big hug. Just send you the biggest hug. I'm glad I don't have to pay for these hugs that I send out because I'd be wearing a barrel. This is from a very uh this is one of the more obscure surveys. I think we've only had like 25 people fill this one out. But this one's kind of very um this survey is kind of near and dear to my heart just because of stuff that I've I've gone through and I've always had a thirst for wanting to know does anybody else feel this way? This is the survey called uh young male abused by older female. And um if any of you Either females uh, who took advantage of of younger males, and I don't mean you know I was you know thirty and he was nineteen. Um, please, please go fill this out, male or female, um, or if it's just something you fantasize about too, please, please go fill it out because um, I'm I I don't hear enough about this, um, and yet I know that. It's not only out there but but prevalent. I think a lot of guys have trouble talking about it because they think if I it, well, if I got a boner, it you know, it wasn't abuse. All right. Well that was a long fucking setup. I actually grew a I have a, a gray beard now coming in from <laughs> the setup to that. This uh as I said is from the young male abused by older female survey. Filled out by a guy who calls himself John. Uh, there's a last name here, but I don't want to read his last name in case he uh, didn't really want to include that. Um, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, he's never been sexually abused. Um, and he is a male who fantasizes about sexual situations with a much older female. So this one actually kind of isn't really... Um, this is kind of an aberration in terms of what how people usually... Fill the survey out since nothing actually there was no violation here. But just read the fucking survey, Paul. Sweet mother of God. I'm like Ed Norton setting this thing up, dusting it off with my kerchief. Um, his fantasy involves, uh, him, a male of 24 years old, to be sexually involved with a woman in her 50s. Um, he writes, I was caught masturbating by a woman in her mid-50s when I was 14. The only person I ever told was a friend. I've always felt ashamed of the situation, and I have had masturbatory fantasies about it ever since. Um, he feels regret and shame about the uh, the event. Um, Do you feel any damage was done? He writes, I think damage was that the damage done was natural and out of embarrassment for my sexual behavior although sometimes i blamed it on my being overly sexually compulsive dude you were 14 yeah if you can if you can get any time together with your hand off your dick when you're 14 that's a small victory um and then he writes, I do fantasize about sexual relations with women of her age almost daily. It makes me feel incredibly aroused, excited, invigorated, and ashamed. Um, yeah, I find that one interesting, and I and I relate to that. Um, I definitely relate to that. So you're not alone, buddy. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Tracy. She is straight in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. I get overly jealous of people's accomplishments and life's successes, and I'm happy when bad things happen to people I don't like, but who doesn't do that? I denounce plastic surgery, but secretly wish I would get some. I could get some. When I'm driving, I sometimes fantasize about just not stopping and disappearing and starting over, or I'll fantasize about crashing into a tree just to see what would happen. Deepest, darkest secrets. I was raped when I was 12. I never told a soul. I've never said it out loud. I've never even written it down until now. I was too worried about how people would treat me and how much it would upset my family. Oh, Tracy, that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart that you have sat with this pain since you were 12 years old. Please go talk to somebody about that. doesn't have to be your family, but somebody a, a mental health professional, a support group that is too much for maybe i'm maybe I'm exaggerating, but I don't think so. I really don't you know I'm, I'm not a I'm not a doctor, but I did roast chicken while we showed a John Hughes movie, and I think that qualifies me to make mental health qualifications sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i've often fantasized about lesbian sex three ways or sex in a public place or as a performance for other people um now i'm always interested that the people that that want to um have sex in front of other people which is a fantasy of mine as well it's always either in front of specific people that they know or like people that they know well or it's strangers Just once I'd like to see somebody who wants to have sex in front of a group of acquaintances. that would be refreshing. Uh, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, yes, but it would take a long time to trust someone enough to tell them. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, not really. I mostly just wish I were more comfortable talking about it. Well, I'm going to say what everybody else is thinking, which is start talking about it start talking about it with somebody who is appropriate and safe. I can't I can't even fucking imagine what a mess I would be if I didn't talk about all the shit I've gone through and experienced and it's probably a tip of the iceberg of what some other people have experienced. We're almost we're in the home stretch. This is an email I want to read from Uh, Sheep Dip and um, he writes "Uh, Dude I found your podcast at just the right time. It was exactly what I needed Thank you. I listened to at least one episode each day. For the past five years I've been a total dick to my wife I thought she was the problem Turns out she was but so was I. Once I finally accepted that I couldn't do it anymore without help, the dark gray cloud started to lift I'm as close to an atheist as you can get, but I think this must be how it feels for born-again Christians when they, quote, give their burden to God and let him carry them for a while. The simple act of telling my wife that if she didn't give me a fucking break, I was going to literally step in front of a bus changed everything. She heard me for once and and started to give me the break I needed. That got me to schedule appointments with a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and next thing I know, boom! I stumble across your podcast and learn that, just as you say, I am not fucking alone. I'm not nuts. I'm just human. And my problems are problems only because I denied them as problems. Like many of your listeners, I shy away from the spiritual stuff you often talk about. I don't believe in the bearded man in the sky or the Bible. But one morning, I sat on the edge of my bed with my hands out to my sides, My palms up and my eyes closed. I thought about the universe, stars, nebulas, galaxies, the Higgs boson, dark matter, etc. I allowed myself to reach out and connect to it. I didn't expect an answer, but I allowed myself to accept that I am a part of all of that and I was before I was born and will be after I die in one form or another. It helped. A few days later, I was getting ready to leave for work. I walked past my bedroom and heard one of my daughter's toys talking in the room. Don't freak out, it's a battery-operated toy that's supposed to talk. I don't know what triggered it, but I looked in the room and noticed that my earbuds were still on the nightstand. If not for the toy, I wouldn't have been able to listen to your podcast that day. I grabbed them and walked out of the room. The toy spoke again. It said, I shit you not. Thanks a lot. See you later. I laughed and said to it, and the universe, thank you too. Anyway, thanks for what you're doing. Don't be so hard on yourself. You're making a positive difference in other people's lives, and you are appreciated. Thank you, Sheep Dip. And I want to end on his happy moments, memory. And he writes, My mother would sit in the, sun li- in the sunlight near the sliding glass door and lay my head in her lap. She would clean my ears and my face and then run her fingers through my hair always tugging gently but firmly when she reached the ends. It was the safest I've ever felt in my entire life. I never felt more relaxed. I have to tell you, of all the happy moments I've ever read on this show, that one really moves me. I shared that with my therapist on uh, on Monday, that, that memory, and then I just started crying. If you're a parent, that is what your kids want. Yeah, they want nice tennis shoes and stuff like that, but they want moments like that. I didn't think I was going to get so choked up reading that, but ah, I never got that moment as a kid, and that just seems like the fucking greatest thing in the world so thank you for sharing your pain and I don't even know what I want to say but that 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 opened up something in me when I read that. It's like, that's what I want. And I think at night when I feel that hole in my chest and I start looking at porn or distracting myself with something else, I think that, that there's some type of comfort that I want that is really deep down that. And I asked my wife for that. Uh, uh, after I came home from um from the therapist and um <laughs> so funny because i as i've shared my 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 wife is nurturing in many ways but with physical affection it's it's doesn't necessarily come naturally to her and that's probably why i picked her but i it was literally like going okay now would you stroke my head Okay. Now would you tell me nice things? Would you tell me why you loved me? And then I just started to cry. And I guess that's what vulnerability is. That's what that's what we really crave. And I did. I felt such a sense of peace after that. So it's nice to know. It's nice to know that there are people that can can give that to us when we feel that that emptiness come up. And I know we also got to be able to give it to ourselves. That nobody else can fulfill it, fill us up. But um, thank you for sharing that moment because I guess what I'm trying to say is it made me realize that that is what my soul was craving was that moment. And I was able to go to my wife and um, have, her <laughs> have her mechanically try to recreate it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, thank you guys for listening. I, I hope I hope that last 10 minutes made sense because I don't want to go back and, and re-edit Um, that it feels a little rambly, but, um, I know rambly has probably never turned you guys off. You'd rather have it be honest and and rambly than, um, cold and calculated. So if you're out there and you're struggling, I hope you heard something in the last, uh, hour and a half, two hours that, um, helps you realize that you're not alone and that there, there is hope. You just gotta be willing to ask for help and connect to another human being and uh, you're not alone thanks for listening
1: everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some
0: weird way <laughs>